Geek Nerdery. Player one, press start to play. Welcome to episode number 38 of Graveyard Duck Podcast. With you as always, my name is Scott. And I'm Wes. Had to had to think there for a second. I couldn't remember what number it was. I'm, I thought you said you couldn't remember what name you used. Yeah, I, I remember mine. I think okay. you're Wes and uh, yeah. Graveyard Duck. I got that one straight. But yeah, just too many numbers in my head because, you know, we're episode 38, but we're talking about the NES in 1988 and just talking off mic like I got so confused as to what year we were doing because we're already prepping for what the challenge for next year or next week's going to be and I, I don't know but i think we got it all straight talking 1988 right yeah okay. of course i know so no. if, if you've been following along for the last few episodes we've kind of been taking this uh chronological odyssey through the nes uh starting in 1985 when it first hit shelves in the u.s and um just kind of going, you know, each year from there, looking at it from purely a North American perspective, um, kind of talking year by year of, you know, it's talking a little bit about some of the big games that came out that year. But for the most part, we wanted to spotlight and focus on some uh, games that we think are underrated or maybe the games that got overshadowed by the Marios and the Zeldas and the Mega Mans that everybody was out there looking for. So, um yeah, that's kind of what we've been doing. Hopefully you've been enjoying this kind of tangent series that we have going right now. But uh, I don't know. I think it's fun. Wes, are you enjoying it? Yeah, I, I like this uh, view a lot. There's, I mean, it's fun going through and playing things chronologically and seeing how it progresses. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm having fun just spotlighting some, uh, you know, some underrated games and talking a little bit about them. So I think, yeah. I think this has been fun. I like doing our regular episodes, too, but I also like... Uh, I like going through this series too. I think. Well, and this kind of gives us an opportunity to maybe pick a couple games that wouldn't be on the top of our list in terms of episode topics. So we'll, we'll get back to those because I kind of miss doing some of the bigger ones too. So, Oh yeah, for sure. But I like this format too, you know, to do every once in a while. I think, especially after we're done wrapping up the nest stuff, I think this would be a lot of fun to go back and examine, you know, like the Genesis and maybe the master system as well and kind of dig into those. Yeah, for sure. It has definitely given me an opportunity to play games that I have not spent that much time on otherwise. So, yeah, which is great. I mean, I it's always fun to discover games that you haven't played before and you know dig into them a little bit more. So, right. 
So going through kind of our chronology again, right now we're again talking 1988. So by now the NES has been out for several years. It's definitely caught its stride. Um, it's popular. I think just about everybody had one or was close to it at this point. Um, I actually still did not have mine yet, but was getting to the point where I had friends that did. And the games, the games that came out in this year are a lot of the ones that were in my friends' bedrooms, like when I would go over and play Nintendo. Mm -hmm. So like this was the this is where I kind of call or what I kind of call the seminal year for at least my NES nostalgia. Um, not all of these games were ones that I was able to pick up right away on cartridge, but like when I think back to what were the most iconic games for the NES for me, almost all of them fall out of 1988. That's a good point. Um, I would also think that this is kind of the year that you started to see a lot more of these titles on shelves and, you know, probably more prominently than some of the earlier releases. Um, like mm -hmm. we talked before in previous episodes, some of the print runs were kind of small or earlier games that we covered in previous episodes. But, you know, just looking through the list of um, games that came out in 88, I do remember seeing quite a few of these on shelves. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Well, and let's also not forget to mention, you know, one of the most important things from, I'm guessing, most of our childhoods, especially mine, was Nintendo Power. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the year of, you know, the origins of Nintendo Power in terms of uh, the big titles that are on this list are also a lot of the big titles that were getting those initial um, covers for, yeah. you know, the oh, first yeah. year of Nintendo Power. Like, you know, the, those first three episodes or issues that came out second half of first year of, you know, first season of Nintendo Power, we got Super Mario Brothers 2. We got Castlevania 2, we got Dragon Field 2, and then right after that, you know, comes in, we got Zelda 2, and then mm -hmm. a couple other games that are coming later. But um, yeah, and, and I mean, that first issue of Nintendo Power, I read it cover to cover, I don't know how many times, but there was, you know, tons of coverage of not only Super Mario Brothers 2, obviously, but Double Dragon was in there, um, which also came out this year. They talked a little bit about, like, Castlevania 2 in there. Um, and Bionic Commando, I think, got some coverage. Gauntlet got some coverage. So, you know, that's where we are. We're we're looking at Contra, Double Dragon, Metal Gear, Gauntlet, Mario 2, Blaster Master, Bubble Bobble, Bionic Commando, Simon's Quest, Zelda 2, you know, are kind of the, the really, really big heavy hitters. And if... And Airwolf. I'm sorry? I said and Airwolf. And Airwolf. I don't know. <laughs> Dr. Chaos. So it's like if I read through that list, and there, I mean, there's you know, yeah, Lee Trevino is in there. Let's let's not forget him. Yeah. Um, Games for your grandparents to buy for you. But uh, you know, if if me reading that list didn't make you go, oh, I love that game at least two or three times, like you just weren't playing Nintendo. Um, so it's it's no question that you know the Nintendo was here. It was strong. And I think that this is when it was really kind of shedding the arcade roots a little bit. There, some of those games were still here. Galaga came out this year um, and was a, a really strong port of the arcade. We also got Donkey Kong Classics, um, but Millipede, Pac-Man, I guess we're in here too. But it's just like, it felt like so sure. much of... Xenophobe, Xevious, yeah. Yeah, um, but I just feel like so much of what came out this year was like the NES identifying itself as more than just 
an arcade system. Um, we talked about that a little bit last week with you know Legend of Zelda and Metroid games like that. But I think that you know they, they really kind of broke the mold with some of this, um, or at least the games that were arcade ports were really you know redefined um, to the point where I think that a lot of the games here. I, I was much older before I realized that some of my favorite NES games were actually based on arcade, arcade games like Contra, mm-hmm. Double Dragon, Gauntlet. Um, these are one, you know, Bubble Bobble even are obviously 1943. Um, yeah. And uh, Bionic Commando as well. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all arcade games, but like it was years later before I found the arcade and I'm like, Oh, like this was an arcade game too. And then I was like, yeah, I like my NES version better. Um, well, that's what was cool about it is, um, you know, you you sort of got like the the different version or the alternate version of you know a game that you liked in the arcade, right? And that's for better or worse, you know, in cer- certain aspects. But um, it it was always cool to be able to play is sort of an alternate version of something that you liked a lot, right? Right. It's like the second quest. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to describe, but um, you know, like Double Dragon, for instance. I love the arcade version. I mean, I I still do, but I like the the NES version a lot too because it's completely different. Even though it didn't have two player simultaneous play, which was kind of a bummer, um, you know, it had sort of a leveling system. You know, you got you know stronger moves as you advanced in level and stuff like that. It was cool. It was just a little bit different. It had a couple extra levels and stuff like that. So um, I like stuff like that when they started to do that. Yeah, well, and it made it so that then when you did go to the arcade and play these it was familiar enough that you kind of had a grasp on what you were doing, but then it felt like, Oh, this is weird. Cause this is different or mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's unique, but it's, so it's like similar, but just, you know, bizarro world version of the game. Bit. Yeah. Which is cool. You know, yeah. no problem with that, but there's some stuff that, yeah, like you said, I prefer the, like, I definitely prefer the Ness version of Bionic Commando to the arcade version because the arcade version is just a little bit too early of a game, I guess compared to the NES one. I mean, the, the art style is different, and the gameplay is a little different. It's just, yeah, Bizarro would be a good way to put it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Contra is another one where I just think that, you know, that the, the smoothness of the controls in the NES are just better than the arcade. Like, I still have a difficult time controlling the arcade version. Um, well, it's, yeah, because it animates a little strangely. Like, your mm-hmm. characters just kind of... They're not really floaty, but for some reason they just—it feels like the character takes up more space on the screen than what yeah. the screen is. If that makes sense, I guess. And they're very big when they jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just very bizarre. Well, the arcade game is kind of weird anyway because it's it's on a vertical oriented monitor. Which True. For, uh, um, for an action game like that, it's always been kind of strange. I mean, it looks cool when you're in the like the maze sections, but for the main game, it's just weird. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, okay, so I mean, do you have any highlights or nostalgia for 1988? Um, th- things about this year that really jump out at you? Yeah, I've got a decent amount of them because uh, you know you mentioned like this is like the first year of Nintendo Power really starting up, which is cool because like I I definitely remember getting my first issue of it, but I had the NES in '87, so I got I remember getting like the last issue of Nintendo Fun Club News, which mm-hmm. was um, I think it was the one. Or I might have got the one that had RC Prime on the cover, but uh, I'm looking at my copy of uh, Adventure of Link right now, Volume Two yeah. from April May of '98 or of '88. I I read that thing cover to cover, even though it was only like eight pages. 
you know so like getting nintendo power that had just you know page after page of games it was like oh my god this is amazing i love that mine uh the uh crossword puzzle in the back is half filled in oh that's great yeah yeah i don't there's just so many games in 88 just looking at it i mean i rented or or played most of these you know back in the day and owned quite a few of them um you know stuff like blaster master and obviously simon's quest we talked about that on the first episode but even you know some of these other ones that came out i remember renting and enjoying like cobra command was kind of cool it was like sort of a choplifter style game um Bazanadu was technically 89 but it's on this list for 88 so that one was kind of kind of iffy but um and then there's, there's some some stinkers too you know you've got ghostbusters yeah uh, ikari warriors 2 which i'm not i'm not a huge fan of ikari warriors just because the i don't know they're they're not really good ports um but then you have stuff like jackal you know jackal is awesome yeah you know? so i don't know it's interesting because it's like you said it's a it's a much different style of game now i mean we're getting into the nes style game which is you know a game that has an ending for the most part and it's you know sort of a mission or story-based game at least that's how i was sort of distinguish them at least from atari it was like okay atari games are mostly like to me they were like score attack kind of games and then like real nes games had had an ending that you could achieve you know right and that was right. always to, to look forward to so you're seeing a lot more story driven games here which is cool well and this is the year you know uh, again other than a couple exceptions from 87 88 was the year where the you know phrase beat the game was really kind of coined because mm-hmm. you're right that was more the objective and yeah. you know the Although, i mean people were saying that was super mario brothers though that, i mean true like and I, like i said there were a couple exceptions but like this is where that really came in and you started seeing the score disappear from games around this time as well yeah um, and even games where it had it like a lot of times I wasn't even aware of the fact that there, there was a score in these games or, you know, why I should care. Um, because yeah, it wasn't about like, I, I never played super Mario brothers to try to get points. I played it so that I could save the princess. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you can, you can still play it and get points too, which is cool. You know, right. it's another aspect of it, but I guess you have to, you have to dig that kind of stuff too. Though. Some people like score attack stuff. Some don't. Yeah. And as a kid, that was just definitely never my objective. Um, so yeah, I mean nostalgia for me, like I said, this is this is the golden year for the NES. Um, some of my absolute all-time favorite games come out of here. Um, I still to this day love Super Mario Brothers two. Um, Blaster Master is amazing. Zelda two mm-hmm. is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, and Simon's Quest. You know, we dedicated our entire you know first episode to it. Like definitely one of my favorite games. And We've you know, dedicated our. Uh our episode name to it a little bit. Right, yeah. Um, and, and so, like, so many of these games are just, like, I, I hold them on a pedestal, and I just can't say anything bad about most of them. Like, it's just, and, and that's not everything for the whole year. I'm kind of talking about just the highlights, but, like, yeah, yeah. it's just, th- this is my golden year. And um, when I think back to my childhood, like I said, these are the ones that really stand out as that introduction to when I first fell in love with the NES, like these were the games that were sitting on those shelves. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they always, they'll probably always have a soft spot, you know, for me um, for that reason, even though, like I said, I'm still a year away from getting my NES. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I was definitely aware of them. And as I was getting it and starting to collect, these were the games that were available because mm-hmm. the, the newer games weren't coming out yet or were harder to find, but these were still kind of, 
you know abundant or on shelves. Um, I, I can remember the first NES game I purchased, um, or at least the one I have the first game I have a memory of was picking up Zelda Two, nice. and I it was with you know collecting allowances and birthday money and Christmas money, and I think I think it was for my birthday I finally got enough money from a check from my grandma that I could afford a game and convinced my dad to go out to Toys R Us. And we went there and had all the, you know, cardboard uh, box arts in the little plastic sleeves. And you got to, mm-hmm. you could flip them up and look like at the back too. And look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember looking at Zelda too, just thinking like, oh my God, I didn't know there's a second one yeah. and buying it and reading it, you know, over and over and over and over again in that car ride home. And yeah, that's my first video game purchase memory. Nice. So I have a, that reminds me, I have a Zelda two memory that, that is still kind of, kind of cool and interesting because uh, the town that I grew up in, um, a couple of friends that I hang, hung out with all the time, um, we would go to a couple of different places in town to, um, to rent games. And there was um, obviously the short line, which I've talked about in a couple of previous episodes. And uh, there was another place, um, TNT video for a little while before, um, before convenient video was a few years down the road, but there was another little place that was sort of this unassuming one that was farther down the road in town. And it was like past the Dairy Queen. And it was in this little like kind of shady, not really shady looking, but like almost like a, just some, like a nondescript building with like, you know, siding and just a tiny window cut out, whatever. And I remember that place, they rented some, had some games and some movies to rent. And I don't remember specifically how we discovered this, but, um this guy had two copies of zelda 2 to rent um and they were um french canadian versions so i remember like i mean they were in english but the boxes had english and uh french on them so um i just i don't know how we got tipped off that that he had them and this was before i can remember this was before it like legitimately released in the u.s but like oh my god he's got zelda 2 to rent so like we went there and rented it. I think it was a little bit more expensive than um, than the other rental stores because I remember like well, Plaza Video was another one too. It wasn't this one, but uh, most of those stores were. It was like three bucks to rent a game for a night, and I think I want to say Zelda Two was like either five or six. It was a little bit more, probably because he paid more for him. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I can just remember renting it and being like really excited that uh, that we got to play it before it came out for sale in the US, which is cool. So, um, but yeah, you know, barring the fact that it was, you know, some shady fly-by-night rental place that, you know, probably would have ended up on different strokes for, you know, different reasons. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, behind the bicycle shop, so to speak. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, the things you do to play Zelda too, you know? Right. Sacrifices. I mean, it's, it's worth it. Right. <laughs> All right. So... We're here to talk about, you know, some of the underappreciated games, not the ones that everybody loves. So, although we might be able to put Zelda Two on that list, because and not everybody loves that one, but um, it's it's really good. It's so different than the rest of the series. Yeah, uh, it'll get its own episode here someday. But yeah, uh, I really want to talk about that in a full episode. So for now, we were talking about again. Each of us kind of had our own pick of under underappreciated. Uh, totally underrated games from the year. So um, I don't know, Wes, I would say that um, I've been talking a lot. So if you want to head this out and go first, go for it. Okay. Um, This was a tough one actually for 88 because 
the couple ones that I was thinking of, they ended up being 1989 games because the list we were using isn't super accurate, but it's hard to pinpoint exact release dates, you know, in this era of games. But uh, I decided then after looking at all the different games this year that uh, my pick for an under underappreciated game in 88 is Golgo 13 top secret episode. And the reason I think that is because when I originally rented this, um, I didn't play it very much. I played maybe the first level or so. It's kind of like, okay, this is kind of boring because it's not really a action run and gun shooter. It's more of like an adventure game almost. So I kind of just passed it up for a while, but occasionally I'd come back to it and, you know, rent it and down the road. Then when I started collecting games later on in life, it, it was super cheap at the time. So I picked it up. And um, the more that I played it then and kind of realized that there was more to it than that was based on um, a manga and anime series in the 80s in Japan. But we got um, two games on the NES, Dolgo 13 and uh, Moffat Conspiracy. But I really like this game because there's not only is there like more to it than what you would think, but it's also got probably one of the first like adult themed plots and storylines of any NES game because you start off as uh, when the American version, it says that you're a spy, but you're really, the character is really an assassin. And uh, there's a, um, the game starts out with a uh, helicopter explodes in New York city. And there's a, uh, a biological weapon that's been stolen. And uh, so they, they kind of uh, dispatch Golgo 13 to sort of get to the bottom of this mystery. And, you know, the, the KGB is involved, the CIA is involved. And so it's like a pretty heavy storyline for an NES game. It's, it's got sort of this like really dark James Bond style story going on for it. But it's also like for a NES game, it's super violent. I mean, you walk around town and there's um, people that, you know, some of them you can talk to Zelda 2 style and get hints and clues as to where to go next. And then some of them just start randomly shooting at you. So you have to shoot and kill them. But there's also, besides the side-scrolling parts where you go through different buildings and try to piece together clues and move the story forward, there's other types of gameplay that present themselves in this game. So you have not only your side-scrolling shooting, but then you have sort of these first-person shooting segments where you move a cursor around, kind of like, um, I don't know what you see, like Operation Wolf or Bayou Billy or something like that. But then you've also got um, some like stages where you control a helicopter. It's like a side-scrolling shoot 'em up. And then there's even like 3D mazes and underwater like scuba diving scenes and stuff like that. So there's a lot to it, and it's I don't know. I think it's cool. Like the more I play it, like throughout the years, um, you know, like in the uh, the maze sections, like you know, if you draw out a map on graph paper and kind of map it along, it's kind of fun, and you just start to unravel this like this mystery of the game almost. But what's really cool about it is the game itself kind of plays out like a TV series. So you don't really have the traditional like three lives mechanic. You have about 52 lives because um, it's kind of structured. The game structures itself like it's a 52 episode series. So you have 13 different levels to get through. But each time you die, then um, the number goes up on the title screen. So then it might say like number two, number three or whatever. So it kind of corresponds to like almost an episode, which I thought was kind of cool because not really, no other game really did that at the time, you know? So if you're on like, let's say level four and, you know, you get like halfway through the level and you die, then it's like, oh, you know, on the next episode, 
what's going to happen, you know, or did he die? Did he get back? You know, so I thought that was cool. Um, it's incredibly tough, a really tough challenge in the game because there's, again, there's like 13 levels that just get more and more progressively difficult. But I don't know. I think it's cool. Um, I like adventure games and I like a game that kind of mixes up different styles of gameplay. And I think Dalgo 13 kind of does both of those in like just a very cool stylistic way. And it's also the first NES game, I think, where, um, you know, there's there's a sort of implied sex scene in the hotel when you meet this girl, like, quarter of the way through the game, which is sort of censored in the NES one, but you still get the point. I mean, you see two silhouettes and then the light turns off, so it's not hard to figure out what goes on. Sexy time. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's my pick. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a game that is not really appreciated for what it is or what it's trying to do, but... Uh, yeah, it's just it's a shame that this series only had like two games. I would like to see like either a cell shaded GoGo thirteen style game or maybe an indie game that sort of borrows some of these concepts. I think there's more here that that could really be played around with. Yeah, that's interesting. I um I have to admit that this is a game I've never played, um, or not for more than you know five minutes here and there. It was kind of right. one of those. I think maybe in college when emulators were first kind of coming out, like I probably put it on and played it a little bit and i was like yeah this is weird i don't know what this is and yeah and it's kind of the end of it the first level doesn't really do a, much of a good job of really introducing you into the game because you're just kind of you you're walking kind of strange through this city you know you press b to jump which is completely opposite of like every other game which is a to jump but you're i don't know like you press b and you like you jump really high and you press a and you do this weird uh jump kick that doesn't really connect to anything you can't crouch to shoot, so you can only shoot while you're standing. So it's got like it's got some baffling design decisions to it. But once you kind of get used to those, it I don't know. I, why I can't why can't Gol go crouch? Yeah, exactly. Why can't he <laughs> crouch to shoot? So um, but, you know, once you get past that that limitation, I think there's there's more to this game than uh, than a lot of people think. Yeah. Um, well, and I think part of the thing that turned me off originally was. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously based on an anime, which mm. I was not familiar with when I watched this and or when I first played this. And it just kind of made me think that, that I had never seen the cartridge of this before. Mm. And so when I was kind of playing on emulators, like one of the other things you discover when you do that is like all of these, you know, Japanese only release games or the Famicom games or th- things that we've just never seen or been exposed to. And quite often a lot of those are tied to, you know, some very popular Japanese uh, phenomena and without the context or without an understanding of kind of what that is, a lot of these games are very difficult to dissect and understand. Mm. And I disagree somewhat. Well, I think it depends on the game. And I don't know if I'm not saying that this game was that, Mm. but that's the impression that I had was that, oh, this is probably like a really popular Japanese thing. I don't know anything about it. That's probably why I don't know what's going on and, you know, just kind of get, gave it up. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think that's, I think that was wrong. You know, that was an incorrect assumption to make, but. Sure. No, I get what you're saying. It's just, um, I think it's a fine line between like finding something that's, that's accessible and not having a bunch of baggage that, that you kind of have to study. But that being said, I think um, the plot for this is pretty simple. And even just the explanation of the character, it's just like, you know, he's, the man with the custom M16, you know, and uh, he's 
he's an assassin, he's a spy or whatever. So I feel like that kind of tells everything that you need to know right off the bat. But um, it's just, it's different though, because, you know, we're getting NES games that are not really tied to any other piece of media at this point. And by this point in Japan, the, the system has been out for over five years. So the tie-ins are much greater there because you're, you're drawing inspiration from uh, from comics, from TV shows, you know, and we didn't quite have that yet. I mean, granted, we had stuff like Airwolf and Anticipation and, you know, things like that, but... Oh, Anticipation. I love that game, too. Yeah, not a big fan. I owned the cart when I was a kid. That was one of those, like, family games that we played now and then. And yeah. what was funny is that I... I hadn't played it in probably 20 years mm. and put it on, you know, just yeah, a few months ago, maybe. Mm. And what was funny was like, for those people who don't know what the game is, it's a, it's like a connect the dots game where it's there's area, isn't it? I mean, in a way. Uh, yeah. Or... But with, with connect the dots. So like the dots come up and there's a timer and a pencil starts drawing the line between the dots and as soon as you think you know what the picture is that it's trying to draw you hit a button and you got to guess and if you're wrong then you lose if you're right then you get to move on the board um mm. but what was funny was like even though it had been 20 years since i played it i was playing it with my wife and like i was like oh yeah this isn't fair because i just saw the dots and immediately knew what the picture was because i had played it so much as a kid nice. <laughs> That's that's a way to guarantee that you'll never play games with your significant other again. Like that's, here's a game right. that I've memorized backwards and forwards. That's and why then, we like Dr. Mario, because we can, you know, she can be on level six and I'm on like level eighteen. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that though, because that made me think of a few months ago, um, Shannon and I were on this Wheel of Fortune kick because she used to play NES Wheel of Fortune all the time. So um we played through I think there's what, like two or three different versions. And I just remember like for like a couple of nights of just like drinking and playing wheel of fortune on NES. You know? And it's funny too, because like some of the puzzles and the clues are like, there's so many dated references in there now, which is kind of funny. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, yeah, I used to have, Je- I used to have jeopardy for uh, DOS. I wonder if, Oh man, I wonder how dated that is now. <laughs> right. Yeah, Even as a kid, though. I didn't have any clue who most of the celebrities were. They were talking about. Right. Why is every answer Ted dancing? <laughs> But yeah, it's funny though because like Wheel of Fortune, like on the NES, you know, you gotta um, you gotta point the cursor at every letter and whatever. So it's a lot of fun as like a party game still, I think, because especially if you're like having a few drinks and playing, um, you know, all it takes is like one wrong press of a button somewhere within the word, and it's like, okay, do I tell them? No, I'm not gonna tell them. I'm gonna wait and see if they get it wrong, and then you go and you answer it right, spell it correctly. I don't know, just kind of fun. Yeah, being a dick to your friends is a good time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, anything more with Golgo 13 you want to talk about? Uh, you know, I, I guess that kind of covers it. I don't know. It's just um, you have to kind of just give it some time, I think, to really let it sink in um, as far as the, the type of game it is. But like I said, if you're if you're into adventure games and stuff like that, think of it as like an adventure game that's got some shooting elements to it. Yeah, you picked this one kind of late, or at least told me about it late that I hadn't got a chance to play it yet, and actually had planned on it today, and yeah. got got busy after work, didn't get time, so yeah. uh, it it is on my to do list now. Yeah, yeah, you can check it out. So, like I said, my um, the first pick that I was going to do because we were going off of uh, nestguide.com, it's kind of 
kind of incorrect, but I started playing it. The first pick that I was going to do was Fazanadu, um, uh, mm. but uh, ended up being that was the 1989 game, which I didn't know. So. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, should we move on to my pick then? Sure. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Like, this was a tough year to pick kind of the underrated one. It um, is. On the one hand, there are a ton of overshadowed games because, as we said, like the big Big Ten or whatever were so popular and so mm-hmm. huge that a lot of other stuff just never even made it through the cracks. But then again, this was also a year where I think that you know, NES craze and NES mania was so big that we were at the, you know, I was at the video store, you know, renting, you know, all the time. And so a lot of these games were available, you know, or like if, if the big ones weren't like you found one of the smaller ones, but so I think a lot of the stuff got played, but um, yeah, I don't know. Trying to pick one that was, you know, kind of an underrated game. I I went with a pick that I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, popular this pick will be because it's kind of on the cusp of whether it's, unknown or not um but i went with mylon's secret castle mm, nice. which is a game that i'm sure a lot of people are at least familiar with because recently with the advent of virtual console this game's kind of become you know or it's it's everywhere um it was on the wii virtual console it was on the 3ds virtual console it may have been on the nes classic i'm not sure mm-hmm. um, uh, that i'm not sure if Maybe. it, if it if it wasn't, it would. I doubt it, though. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me either way because I feel like this was one of those ones that's like really common and one of the early releases on all of those virtual console systems too. Well, it's, it's weird too because it's a Hudson game and Hudson is now owned by Konami. Like Konami owns all of Hudson's IPs, so some of that stuff hasn't really been re-released as much. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, like I think that people know this game and i think it also has some notoriety for being one of those games that people just love to hate on um (laughs) it's one of the most difficult games on the system i'll tell you that you know and and i'm gonna contest that okay because i think and i think that's why i ultimately picked it as my underappreciated game Mm -hmm. because i think that it's it's similar to deadly towers which i talked about two weeks ago Mm -hmm. in that there's there's an initial difficulty curve that if you don't understand kind of what the mechanic of the game is it's very off-putting but if you know what you're doing and you kind of understand the concept it's actually very very manageable um and uh, so like because of that like i i had never played this up until a few years ago when i you know started really getting into virtual console and Hmm. collecting some older games that way you never rented this at all no i never had Okay. Never um, played the Game Boy version either? Nope. Huh. So, yeah, for me, the first time I really ever played this was, you know, within the last 10, 15 years. And, yeah, I did the same thing that probably everybody did. I started playing. I'm like, okay, this is, like, really kind of weird, cutesy graphics. You know, there's this little cartoon elf-looking dude walking around a castle, shooting bubbles, like, eh, maybe it's fun, maybe not. But <laughs> then, yeah, the... It's not that it's necessarily a difficult game to control or to play. It's that you immediately get stuck. And the the general layout is, you know, you kind of go back and forth between two different screens. There's the castle exterior where you're kind of walking along and there's a couple doors on the outside of the castle that you can go into. And you can see that on like floors above you, there are additional doors, but you can't get up to them. Um, 
And when you go in any of the doors on the that main floor, each one takes you into kind of this big side scroller uh, stage. And hidden in that stage somewhere is a key, which usually shows up once you've collected a certain amount of money. Then you can pick up the key. And once you do that, there's a door somewhere that's hidden. Once you find the door, that takes you back out to the exterior. Um, so like the very first stage that you go in, it's not too hard to figure out what to do. You kind of run around a little bit. You probably stumble upon the fact that if you shoot blocks, some of them disappear. And some of them, when they disappear, they leave behind a little you know, money symbol that you can pick up for cash. Um, and beyond that, you may or may not stumble upon some of the other secrets, such as um, there's these like music boxes. There's one in each stage that you. the only way to find those is by kind of Mario style, you jump and hit a box from underneath mm-hmm. and then it might pop up above you. Uh, when you go in there, it just takes you to this little bonus stage where you're trying to collect music notes that are falling from the sky. Um, there's a ton of other secrets that are hidden in the stages too. It's just that none of that's readily apparent at first. Now, the most frustrating part about getting started in this game is that to me, there are two challenges that make this game really, really difficult and one of them is that one of the like like the whole concept of the game is that you have to find all these secrets like there's hidden doors there's hidden exits there's hidden switches there's all these things that are hidden and you got to get used to like how to find them mm. but i think one of the most well hidden items is one of the is the very first one you need and <laughs> I, could, because, yeah, I could agree with that because of that that really turns a lot of people off and i i even remember you know, going back and reading Nintendo Power, one of those first issues has a um, counselor's corner about mm-hmm. Mylon's secret castle or classified information, maybe, that you, usually the classified information is like, here's a code or here's a tip or a trick or something. And in this case, it was like literally just, here's how to get started in this game. Yep. Because you have to have this item because the, on that first floor where there's the four different doors you can go in one of them is the first boss room well the boss isn't there and he won't show up until you have this item um so it's just it's 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 incredibly frustrating you're just like what am i doing wrong what am i supposed to be finding and so you've got to find that first item which you know I'll, i'll tell everybody how to do it in that very first stage that you go into just stay on the first floor you know walk straight over to the right there's like a little green slime you gotta find and then right past that there's a spot on the floor where there's like three blocks in a row you can shoot the first one and the third one and then that just leaves the second one and if you kind of like stand next to it and push it to one side um eventually you know you gotta push on it for a couple seconds then it'll move wait another like five seconds and then a door shows up when you go in that door it's a shop and one of the items that you can buy are these spring shoes which basically let, there's these, they call them trampolines, but they look like little wooden picnic tables. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime you jump on one of those, now that you have the spring shoes, you can jump extra high. So that means that when you go into the second stage, you can actually get places now. Um, but finding that item not only allows you to progress, but it also helps you see like, oh, okay, now I get what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of secrets I'm looking for. Now, the good news is none of the rest of them are that well hidden, so it's it's easier from this point forward. But 
that kind of gives you the idea of what kind of game you're playing because it doesn't seem like it's that kind of game when you first start out you think let's go kill some green slimes and shoot bubbles at things and then you realize that it's more about uncovering all these hidden secret little items yeah Um, you know um as you're talking about that i pulled up the manual and i'm just looking through a little bit and it doesn't like the the booklet for myland secret castle is only like 12 pages Mm -hmm. it says nothing about like the spring shoes or the trampolines or anything no no um under the hidden items section it only it only lists the the money the honeycomb and the hudson bee right the hidden items so yeah it's like the clues are in the shops obviously because the shopkeeper tells you what the what the item does but you would think that somebody would at least put something in the manual to say hey here's the here's what the shoes do here's where to find them go ahead and get started right you know what i mean like yeah. even the manual for Golgo 13 has the maps to the mazes in it, you know, because they knew, okay, somebody's going to look at this and, you know, might need some help because they're going to be lost. But yeah, exactly. And, you know, finding those shops is very important because not only can you buy the items, which there's, I think like 12 items in the game, Mm. 11 of them are essential. The feather is the only one you don't have to have. Yeah. Um, There's like a fire suit and, uh, yeah, there's a there's a vest which makes you a little bit more impervious to fire. It's not perfect, but it helps. And if you you if you go in the well before you get that, you know you're just toast. Um, yeah, and you need like a lamp too, right? You need the lamp to be able to go into the well because the well is dark. Yeah. There's just there's items all over the place, and most of them are kind of a Metroidvania style key mm-hmm. that allows some other area to be accessed. Uh, a couple of them are more like power-ups, like there's the Excalibur, which makes your bubbles really powerful, and there's um, there's a second set of shoes, I forget what they're called, that basically let you do the trampoline jump anytime you jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the blimp is the last one that's just kind of a power-up that lets you kind of like feather fall. And, you know, the, having Excalibur, the blimp, and the you know, second shoes really just opens the game and just makes you so much more powerful and, uh, you know, utilitarian, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's kind of obtuse and the instruction manual does not help at all. Um, and like I said, it's just, it's very easy to play this and not realize what kind of game you're playing because it looks like just a simple platformer. Um, there are a lot of bosses you have to fight, but it's mostly about, uncovering these little secrets which there are tons of tons of Mm -hmm. um the reason i recommend this game is because like the first time i played it once i kind of figured out okay this is what i'm supposed to be doing i had a hell of a good time playing the rest of it Um, yeah once it yeah yeah once it clicks and the i think the challenge is very appropriate there's a lot of spots that are very easy but then there's certain bosses and certain parts that are very very tough um, I've played through this many times and always enjoy doing it. I think it's um, it's definitely the kind of game where, which you and I have both, you know, sung the praises of this type of game where you can just like keep honing and getting better and better and faster and faster. Yeah. Um, it also has the opportunity for uh, challenges, like that. No matter how good you are, there are things that throws at you that you can't predict. Um, one little secret I'll throw, you know out there is that when you get finally get to the final boss there's four different rooms in a row 
that all look exactly alike, except the background wall color is different. There's a like a red one, a blue one, a green one, yellow one, or something like that. And each one of them has the final boss in it, but only one of them is the real one. And if you fight any of the other three and kill him, well, you've got a 75% chance he's going to turn into a crow and just fly away. So then you know, okay, I got to go fight one of the others. So and it, and it randomly changes each time you play the game as to which one's the real one. Oh, really? Okay, I thought yeah. it was always in one specific color room. Nope it's it's randomly determined each time you play. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So that changes it up. Um, now a hint that I'll tell you is that that determination is made um, when the game starts. So really? if if you go in and play and like you kill the boss in the red room and turns out he was fake and then you go on and you die well next time you go to that room you can skip right past the red one because you know it's not that one um so every time you it doesn't reset each time you continue it's already been predetermined okay Uh, and that brings up the other hint that i was going to give which i think really frustrates people about this game is that it seems like it's a one death and you're game over and there's no uh-huh. continuing well there is a continue it's it's kind of like adventure island once you've done just a little bit and made a little progress you can continue um you've got to get the spring shoes you've got to get the medicine and kill the first boss once you kill him and get the crystal ball you have the opportunity to continue from that point forward um anytime you hit the see the game over screen and then the title screen comes back on if you hold left and down on the D-pad and press start, you'll continue right back where you were. Yeah, the the instruction manual mentions that. It actually just says, um, just push left and start to do it. Was it just left? Yeah, I guess you don't have to hit down. Oh, I've always done left and down too. Whatever works, so. Yeah. That's all right. So, yeah, at least it tells you that much. (laughs) But Well, and and that's another thing too, because, um, you know, if if you rent Mylon Secret Castle or... Maybe you bought a used copy card only or something and you never read the book. You know, before the days of the internet, nobody would have known, you know, that there was a continue code unless you were already well versed in pressing left and start, you know, to continue a game because some games would do that. Right. Or you press A and start, you know, like Super Mario Brothers continue code or something. But uh, yeah, I could definitely see like if you didn't have the manual for this. And you died, and, and it was game over, and back to the first level again. I can definitely see the frustration there. Oh God, yeah, because you know, I played this many times, and I die constantly. Like it's a it's a tough game. Um, it it can be a little bit frustrating to because it's got that Metroid thing where when you die, you don't get to start with full health. Um, so like every time I die, I always go back into that very first room and just keep killing the little slimes as they respawn until I. Mm-hmm get my health back up to full and then i can move on through the castle but that that's a if i could fix one thing about the game it would be that because that's just so tedious to have to go do it um every single time you die but as far as the grinding aspect of it yeah just just yeah i'm gonna go straight there and i'm gonna fill my life up so just give me the full health to begin with but yeah um yeah so i i really enjoy this game it's one that I played a couple of times. It just didn't even give it a second thought when I couldn't figure out what to do. And yeah, every time you die, it's just, well, start over again. It's like, yeah, screw this. Right. And yeah. um, luckily, you know, I, I eventually kind of, 
I, th- I think it actually might have been from that Nintendo Power, you know, learned like, oh, okay, now I get it. Yeah. And from that point forward, it's very satisfying to oh, yeah. find another boss, kill another boss, find one of the items or the shops, or like, because it's so full of secrets, every time you find one of those secrets, it just feels really, really rewarding. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I highly, highly recommend it. If it's one you've played and it just didn't work for you or you got frustrated with it and quit, you know, prematurely, like take some of the tips that I gave you and just go try it again. I think you might actually really enjoy it. Yeah. I would say this is definitely the type of game that kind of depends on having a couple different people play it and share tips and tricks and strategies. Definitely. Because, you know, you're, you're not always going to discover something that somebody else did. And so right. that might help your, add to your enjoyment of the game. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting though because uh, you know for the release here, all we really got was just the manual with a couple of hints in it. But um, the Japanese version, actually, there was a full strategy guide that was published for this game. So I'm not sure why that was never brought over here. I mean, there were you know we'd still see it around this time if it wasn't in Nintendo Power. There were occasionally uh, you know you could get strategy guides from the company usually by mailing like you know a check for ten dollars. Uh, getting a strategy guide, so I'm surprised that there wasn't one drawn up for this game because that would have been a, a pretty good money maker too. But maybe just put something in the back to say, you know, here's if you need the hint book, you know, send us a few dollars and we'll send one to you. I don't know. Enix gave me the uh, strategy guide for Dragon Warrior Two for free. Really? Yep. Because I uh, the very first game I ever bought used was Dragon Warrior Two from a uh, Babbage's. Uh huh. And I didn't get an instruction book with it. And I was really bummed out as a kid because I didn't have the instructions. So I just wrote Enix a letter and just said like, hey, I didn't get an instruction book because I bought the game and it didn't have one. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have any extras that you can send me? And they didn't send me that, but instead they sent me the strategy guide. And I'm just like, all right, cool. <laughs> That's awesome. That reminds me too. Um, I may have talked about this before, but um, if anybody listens to uh, Retronauts, um, they had an episode a while back called "Memories of a Game Counselor," and um, they were interviewing this guy. And I, I don't remember what his name was. He's an indie developer now, but um, he talked about um, one of his first jobs was working as a game counselor at Nintendo. But then after that, um, he worked at, at Enix for a little while, and it's. What you what you just said as far as your story as far as getting a free strategy guide that totally makes sense with that company because at the time this guy talked about on the episode that um, Enix was a real small company there's only like two or three people that worked in that office so um, you know not many people like reached out to them or anything like that but I mean that just shows you know how cool of a company they were I guess you know mm-hmm. you just reach out to them and they send you that so well and I noticed later that like the copy I had wasn't the i mean it was the official but it wasn't like a printed one it was black and white like photocopied so like i think they had like a proof or something and actually xeroxed it and stapled it and shipped that to me sure and or you know what that could have also been um maybe the cheat sheet that they used for their um game counselors maybe because uh i think he talked about that on the episode too i think they only had like they only had like one game counselor at nx or something like that maybe two and the same with like um, Nintendo back in the day, you kind of talks about like there were certain people that were good with certain games. So like, uh, I think what's one he was talking about, I think Legacy of the Wizard was one of them where like there was only one guy in the place that 
you know, knew the game backwards and forwards and had like a binder full of information on it. So, uh, you know, if you called in, then chances are you were put on hold while somebody went over and asked the guy that was good with Legacy of the Wizard. So, I don't know. I like those little inside baseball stories like that. You get some, some cool stories. I would sell my house to get my hands on one of the uh, binders that the Nintendo Power Game Counselors used. Well, you don't have to sell your house. You just have to, you know, live in that area. I mean, if you ever watch uh, any like the Metal Jesus stuff on uh, YouTube, he's got one of them. But only because so much of that stuff floats into the uh, like the Goodwills and the used game stores and like the uh, that area of the country. It's just so many people work for Nintendo and so many people have gotten rid of stuff over the years. We're just in the wrong place. Yeah, I've just heard stories about how incredibly rare those are. So maybe I've been mis- misinformed. I know. Crazy. But so anyway, um, yeah, that's a brief look at 1988 and... Uh, some of the underrated games that are there. And there's a lot more like, I don't oh, know. Yeah. Mickey Mouse Capade was one. I don't know how many people have played that, but that's that was a, 88. Yep. That's an 88. That's a, okay. It's not on my list. I didn't even see it. Huh. Um, some of the other games that I think are fairly well known, but I don't know how many people played, you know, as much of them, but like Karnov was from this year. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a good example. Like you were talking about earlier of, uh, you know, games based on an arcade version that are a little bit different. Carnot definitely fits that bill. Uh, I haven't played it in probably 20-some years, but I owned a cartridge of uh, Legendary Wings when I was a kid. Yeah, that's uh, a good Thought that was a lot of fun then. Don't know yeah, how it holds up. but uh, NES advantage for that one, though, because otherwise your thumbs will just, just break down. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. Spy versus Spy, Anticipation we talked about, Blades of Steel, Bump a Jump. Great game. Yeah, yeah that one... I liked Bump and Jump a lot. Like I remember playing the Atari version, and this one like had even more of like a story to it, almost, which is weird. But like, like they added this whole like save the girl type storyline to it, which is weird because it didn't really need it. I don't know. Yeah. uh, 1943. We didn't really talk about that. That's a huge improvement over 1942. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is and this is a like the first year where you start to see, you know, companies like Capcom and some of these really just start developing their own in-house games, you know, instead of subcontracting out to like Micronics or something, you know, Capcom just goes ahead and does 1943 and it's a fantastic game. You know? Totally different. Than 42. Yeah. As far you as know, if, if you want to, and if you want a game that's going to make you go absolutely insane because a su- soundtrack's going to get stuck in your head and make you, you know, kill things. Uh, Zevius came out this year. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I like Xevious, but that soundtrack just drives me up a wall. Oh, it's the worst. I, I almost thought that that should have been our 1988 Graveyard Duck Challenge, was just oh, play it for as long as you can before you go insane. Right. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like just an earworm just burrows into your brain and just plays the Xevious music over and over. Post a video of you sitting there with it playing in the background and just start a timer and <laughs> make it yeah. past a minute, you win. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we can talk about some of the other ones though too like uh, one of my if if i wasn't going to pick galgo 13 i think one of my other ones would have been guardian legend which that's sort of gotten a lot more popular i guess as the years went by but that's a cool game because it's a combination like shoot 'em up and uh, adventure game was that from this year it was 88 on mine hmm. yeah didn't remember um yeah i never i did not play that game all that much so i'm not too familiar with it, it it's really good. 
Yeah. Gunsmith's another one. I, I rented that one a couple of times. That's fun. Don't forget Skater Die. Oh, yeah. I had Skater Die. That was like a cultural phenomenon when that came out. That and Paperboy both. Yeah. Yeah, I had fun with the uh, Paperboy Challenge this week, too. That was a good time. Definitely. And, you know, speaking of which, we're getting ready to do another one here uh, starting tomorrow, aren't we? That is true, yeah. Right, we got a good one lined up for uh, – we're going to be going into the uh, uh, the NES in 1989 in two weeks. So our challenge game is going to be from 89 starting tomorrow, run for a whole week. So uh, we're doing it a little bit differently this time because I was trying to look at what what's coming out in 89 – and I feel like, you know, we do a lot of arcade style games. We do a lot of shoot 'em ups for challenges. We do some puzzle games here and there. But then I got thinking, um, you know, I think if we went with something a little bit more popular that had still had a, a score element to it, I think that would be a lot of fun. So our game for the Graveyard Duck Challenge for 1989 is actually going to be DuckTales. So, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, we want you to take a picture of your highest score because of course in that game you know you can earn money and uh, that actually is your score it's all so, about the benjamin what's that it's all about the benjamins that's right yeah so uh let's see uh who can fill up the money bin uh the highest with the highest score so i'm excited so i haven't yeah. played through ducktales in a few years so yeah this will be fun it's uh one of the cartridges i own i i absolutely love this game um but yeah, it's it's not the kind of, it, it, exactly what we were talking about before. Like, I never played this for points. I played this to you know beat the game. Mm-hmm. So this will be a very interesting kind of twist to see you know as your priorities change as you go through it. Like just how that changes your strategy and sure. approach. Yeah. So yeah, it's it'll be a little bit longer than some of our other challenges because you know you can't just sit down and in five minutes play through. But I think it'll be a lot of fun. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, same here. So, alrighty. Well, that was a good look at uh, '88 again. My golden year, uh, and it's from my perspective, it only gets better. So, um, yeah, so so many good games from this year. So many games that uh, should be on your shelf and in your collection if they aren't already. Go go check them out. I, we're not quite to the years where you know some of these games are getting to be super expensive. So a lot of this stuff is still very affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, there's still a lot of stuff that I feel like um, that we missed, you know, but we'll, we'll probably cover some of these in later episodes too. But as we get more down the line of the uh, NES games, there start to be so many games that get released every year. Then it's, it's hard to sort of spotlight one or two of them, but right. Uh, right. You know, like, I feel like we didn't talk about Jackal at all. Mm-hmm. And Jackal's freaking awesome. Yeah. Jackal's a good game, you know, but that's a pretty well-known game. So we might be able to devote an episode to something like that down the road. Sure. All right, so 89 is going to be another good one. And speaking of, you know, years with lots of games, that's ooh, that's a big one. So Oh yeah. I got to start looking for what my underrated picks going to be already cuz well, it's going to be a tough one, I think. Yeah, going to be good. But I'm looking forward to it. Play some DuckTales in the meantime. So mm-hmm. uh yeah, I'm just going to go get started now. So until then, yeah. uh I'm Scott and I'm Wes and just remember in the action maze if you become confused Try preparing a map for yourself on graph paper. In a fight, all you need are effort and spirit to win. Game over.